Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 18, Dance in Akihito. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Request Mancini when we request Mancini. Feel like a nutty cuckoo super king when we feel like nutty cuckoo super kings. Those are getting too long, aren't they? You're really challenging yourself with these. They're really, really long, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not up to the challenge. That's half the problem. <laughs> uh, but today, I have challenged myself to speak about Season 2, Episode 5, Dancing Homer. And that first aired on November the 8th, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about Emperor Akihito of Japan, who ascended to the chrysanthemum throne on November 12th, 1990, just four days after Dancing Homer first aired. He succeeded his father, Hirohito one of the most controversial figures of the 20th century. So I'll be talking a fair bit about him too. Excellent. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Certainly on repeat listens, the next uh, part may age the episode slightly, but we're, we're in a slew of celebrity deaths at the moment. And this week, along with uh, King Kong Bundy... And Keith Flint from The Prodigy, we mourn a sideshow. Luke Perry has passed away. We do, we do. Poor old sideshow Luke Perry, Krusty the Clown's half-brother with no talent, according to Krusty, that is. So, yeah, all very sad, especially Keith Flint dying. Yes. Um, Keith Flint of, of, of The Prodigy. I mean, you know, I, 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 I still do love The Prodigy. You know, I remember growing up listening to Firestarter. It was amazing. The uh, the particularly tragic bit, and apologies if this has been refuted or disproved uh, since I recorded this, is that it appears to have been suicide. Mm, yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, very sad. Well, that was a bit of a sad way to kick things off. It was. Can you cheer us up with what was number one? Well, <laughs> can I ever? <laughs> so, the UK number one, uh, on November the 8th, 1990, the time that Dancing Home was first aired in the US was still Unchained Melody. Oh. And the number two was A Little Time. And we've done both of those. Oh, no. So, pausing only to lament that Kylie was just out of reach once more at number four with the excellent step back in time, let us celebrate a strong number three. It's Berlin with Take My Breath Away 1990. Wow. Wow. Now now we're getting into naff. Absolutely. Because there's... There's a lot of that song I like, but it's just like instant cheese, that song. Indeed, but what would you expect from something written by 80 synth master Giorgio Moroder? So Berlin themselves, they're a new wave synth pop concern, whose lead singer Terry Nunn apparently auditioned for the role of Princess Leia in Star Wars. Now that's a Wikipedia fact, so take it or leave it. I'd like to believe that's true, just because it's a bit funny, so... It sounds like it's in the realm of Bob Holness played saxophone on Baker Street. True, that's, true. That sort of fact. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, I'll always believe it, and that's the important yeah. thing. Um, they had the odd notable single before the original release of this song in 1986, and really dropped off after this. But it has to be said that its astronomical success wasn't really illustrative of the band's general popularity level, so why the boost? Well... Take My Breath Away is the love theme from the movie Top Gun. Which is strange as I don't believe it plays during any of the many scenes of love in that film, instead playing during attacks on the heterosexual sex scene. Anyway, the film was everywhere for a bit, and this was the second single to be lifted from its soundtrack after Kenny Loggins' Fantastic Danger Zone. <laughs> which makes me want to shout at people called Lana and reminds me I'm not up to date with Archer. So you may be wondering why this was re-released in late 1990. The reasons are twofold. Firstly, can you believe this? ITV gave Top Gun its first British television showing on October the 6th, 1990, four years after the film was in cinemas. Oh my word, how, how behind is that? Yeah. Uh, around the same time, it was also in a British television advert for Peugeot. So there we go. It's not as random as it looks. Uh, the 1986 version went to number one in the UK, the US and the Netherlands. And this version... 
didn't. Number three is its peak in the UK. Not exactly breathtaking, am I right? You could certainly say they choked. They, they, they were short of breath, I guess, is the takeaway from this part of the podcast. God. Right, let's get to The Simpsons, shall we? Yes. Okay. Um, the chalkboard gag is, I will not trade pants with others. Okay. Unless an Edgar Allan Poe had apparently not learned by the time of his death. Yes. Now, 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 they're American, so when they say pants, they mean trousers. They absolutely do. Right, yes. okay. Because if it was underpants, which it would be in British slang, then, yeah, that's quite scary. <laughs> and the couch gag is that Maggie is initially missing, but then emerges from Marge's hair. And now, just to return to a bit I definitely didn't forget about, the production number is 7F05, and the US viewership had a Nielsen rating of 14.9, it being the highest rated Fox show and 25th overall for the week. Seamless. Absolutely <laughs> seamless. Who wrote the episode? Well, it was Ken Levine and David Isaacs. Ooh. Neither of whom we've mentioned before. So let's meet them, why not? Yeah. Ken Levine, or Levine, delete as appropriate, <laughs> has written for MASH, Cheers and Frasier, but sadly also for Everybody Loves Raymond and Dharma and Greg. Mm. Plus the film's volunteers and Mannequin 2 on the move. <laughs> Didn't even know there was a Mannequin 2. <laughs> Indeed there was. <laughs> Indeed there was. Um... Similarly, David Isaacs has written for MASH, Cheers and Frasier, but also for Mad Men, for which he won a Writers Guild of America award in 2009. Wow, they, they, they had divergent writing careers. Absolutely. My word. I mean, obviously, uh, Ken Levine uh, edges it with Mannequin 2, but, you know, it's, <laughs> both, both got their, their own highs there. Uh, here's a good little fact for you. Ken Levine was also a radio and television play-by-play commentator... For Major League Baseball. Ah. It's said that given his experience, he worked with the animators to establish the atmosphere for the episode, as well as dropping some names he knew from that business into the script. And I believe he also does the voice of one of the baseball announcers in this episode. I think it's the one in the Capital City um, Stadium. Okay. Uh, which obviously makes a great deal of sense. Right. Um, aside from this episode, Levine and Isaacs are both also jointly credited with writing Season 3, Episode 9, Saturdays of Thunder. Uh, though one wonders if they may have had some input into Homer at the Bat later in that season. Mm. So what actually happens in the episode? Well, we open at Moe's Tavern, where the barflies demand Homer tell them the story of what he's been up to the past few weeks. And lo and behold, we're going to see all of that too. It all begins at Nuclear Plant Employees, Spouses and No More Than Three Children Night at the baseball stadium, watching the town's minor league baseball team, the Springfield Isotopes, a mix of players on the way up and washed-up former major league players. And they are playing the unimaginatively named Shelbyville Shelby Villains. I think this is the first time Shelbyville is mentioned in the show, but I can't be bothered to find out if I'm right or not. <laughs> Fair enough. Can you? <laughs> Homer's mainly in it for the beer, citing his ticket as giving him the right, no, the duty, to make a complete ass of himself. Finally settling into their seats after local legend Flash Baylor hits on Marge, they enjoy a 26-minute long rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, courtesy of Bleeding Gums Murphy. And if you go back to our episode on Moaning Lisa, you'll discover that it's a completely different voice for him. His singing mm. voice is different to his talking voice. A bit like Not Michael Jackson later in the uh, series run. Mm -hmm. Well, Lisa enjoys it anyway. And that is when Homer discovers that he'll be sat next to his boss all night. Luckily, and oddly, it's a fun Monty Burns we're getting tonight. Mm. And he chugs down beer and heckles the players with gusto. Homer and Burns' carousing seems evenly matched up until the last play of the game, when Homer gets up and dances to Henry Mancini's Baby Elephant Walk to try to show the team his support. Whilst the Topes win the game, Homer's family and co-workers pour scorn upon him, and he is banned for life from the ballpark. Except he isn't, as Antoine Tex O'Hara, the owner of the Isotopes, hires Homer as their mascot, as the Topes have been on a solid losing streak, and he's willing to try anything at this stage. As Homer experiences people laughing towards him rather than at him for the first time ever, the team keep winning and his stock rises ever higher. When they finally lose, Homer expects the sack, and he's surprised to hear that he's been promoted to the major leagues as the reserve mascot for a larger baseball team. 
That's right. The Simpsons are going to the capital of the state that Springfield is in. <laughs> Homer's supervisor grants him a five-year leave of absence without any follow-up questions whatsoever. <laughs> I love that. Bart and Homer formalise their friendship with a spit shake, and Lisa says a vague goodbye to her peers. Marge says goodbye to nobody, as the show has always painted her to have exactly zero friends, which is horrible, really. Mm. And then they're off to a swinging town I know called Capital City. The kind of place that makes a bum feel like a king, and a king feel like some kind of nutty cuckoo super king. <laughs> and where it's apparently actually illegal to frown. Mm. As an aside, the line, Look, kids, street crime, is something I've always found bizarrely hilarious. And when I worked at the courts, I had access to a stamp that said street crime in absolutely huge letters. <laughs> it is the biggest single regret in my professional life that I never got to use it. Oh, shame. The big day comes and Homer is sent on for the fifth innings. The innings when the chief mascot, the capital city goofball, wishes he had a zipper in his costume. Unfortunately, his small town moves don't impress the city folks. And he is sent packing back to his old life, job, and, for some unexplained reason, house. And if it seems like I'm going through this bit really quickly, it's because the episode itself does just that. This mm -hmm. bit is over in a flash, and it really surprised me on our latest viewing, just how quickly it happens. Mm -hmm. So Homer is back where he started, but at least he is the centre of attention amongst his friends, who beg him to tell the story again. And if you just press rewind and play on the DVD, you can hear it again yourself. Mm, you can. Not a bad episode, that one, is it? I really, really like that one. I really like the the melancholy that's running through it. And I thought that was very interesting, what you said about the atmosphere of it. Because they capture the atmosphere really, really well. Because I've never been to a minor league baseball game. I've been to a couple of major league ones. Mm. I've, I've seen the San Francisco Giants play. But what it reminded me of was going to see a lower league football team. So I've seen a few. I, I remember seeing Scarborough play at their home ground when Scarborough still existed. And you just got lots of little things that reminded you how small it was. So when you went through the turnstiles, there was just one bloke with a table full of money. Like, <laughs> like, 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 like no complicated gates or systems or anything like that. Just, just this one bloke on his own. They had a raffle at half time and third prize was a mixed grill and we were family vegetarians. We didn't even know what a mixed grill was. And no one came forward to claim it. So all the way through the second half, the announcer kept saying, and if you have this ticket, please come forward and claim your mixed grill. That's <laughs> so weird. I did spend one uh, very, very cold night um, in MK Don's original home of the National Hockey Stadium in Milton Keynes. Oh, that must have been a nightmare. Yeah, I think it was something like the 27th or 28th of December one year. It was bitterly mm. cold. Uh, I support West Bromwich Albion for my sins. Uh, and because that was near where me and my dad were living at the time, we decided to go and check it out. Never again. No. Never again. Not, not never football again, but never that again. There was uh, an amusing moment where the, the away fans, we, we managed to get home tickets because, I mean, there was about, I would say, 100 people there, full stop. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly difficult. But the travelling supporters had been put into a, a sort of a jury-rigged temporary stand. And it was announced over the tannoy that they got wind that being uh, West Bromwich Albion fans, they liked to bounce up and down the old uh, boing boing baggies uh, routine. Oh, OK. Uh, and uh, were summarily told that should they try that in the temporary stand, the stand was liable to collapse. <laughs> So uh, that was all of the remaining atmosphere of the game sucked out, really. Oh, um, oh, oh, oh they, didn't, they didn't go for it. They did, they no. Didn't go, oh, that's a no. shame. Nil-nil draw as well. Oh, my word. Just to, just to put the, the tin hat on the whole thing. Yeah, Lord. Going back on my baseball experiences, I remember go, going to San Francisco because I've got family who live there and I really wanted to go to a baseball game. So we went, okay, We'll go to this one because it's a, because it starts at midday. You know, we know we can get there. We know we can get back. So that's when we'll go. So the night before, they'd secured the equivalent of the league title. So the game the next day was just a non-event. It was like the rest of the games didn't matter that much because they'd, they'd already won the league. So there wasn't a huge amount of demand for tickets. But I remember being told, don't bother 
going through the official channels, go and see uh, a tout, but in America they call a scalper. And demand was so low. Right, we, right, we went up to this guy who was selling tickets and went, uh, yeah, 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 we're interested in a couple of tickets. And he went, okay, how about these ones? They're, they're quite high up, but they're, home, they're behind home plate, so you'll see everything. I'll give you those for 20 bucks each. And, you know, we had no frame of reference. We thought, yeah, 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 that sounds good. We can afford that. And we went, yeah, 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 okay, we'll have them. And then he went, or you can have these ones, which are slightly closer, and you can have them for 20 bucks each. It was that desperate, and demand was so low, he was haggling for us. <laughs> Just must be used to it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but there's a bit in the episode which makes me cringe where they get some beer, and the vendor says, 250 250 for two big beers. Last time I bought beer at a baseball ground, it was $20 for two pints. Ugh. Horrible. Yeah, the, the the price of alcohol at American sporting events is quite something. I had some friends who went to WrestleMania a couple of years ago, and it's just it's just untenable. I mean, I suppose it cuts down on drunkenness at sporting events, which mm-hmm. is quite good, but, you know. Um, speaking uh, again of that stadium, though, there's a couple of bits in there where we noticed the animation was uh, recycled. So they were yeah. walking past the same signs, past the same people. There was some very off... Off-model characters in the background. Um, it's not going to be very long now in the in the galactic scheme of things until we get out of this this era uh, when the animators are replaced, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just just strange to see that kind of thing in The Simpsons, especially nowadays. Watching the newer episodes with the computer animation and kind of all the all the stains on the wall you can see and all the pictures and so on and so forth. It's just just weird to think it was like that at one stage. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a certain charm to it, which I won't deny. But it's uh, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like The Simpsons still at this stage. Okay, uh, to me, to me anyway. It's, uh... But before we go too far into controversy. Let's talk about a character debut, because there's a very important character debut in this. And I'm not talking about the Capital City goofball, although spoilers I will be in a couple of minutes' time. <laughs> this episode marks the debut of Tony Bennett, the first celebrity appearing as himself in The Simpsons. Mm, big deal. Yeah. We've had plenty of guest stars before, uh, although that does include Marsha Wallace, the voice of Mrs. Krabappel. And I'm not sure that she ever stopped being billed as a guest star, despite being more of a cast member as time goes on. Mm. We've also had James Earl Jones doing treble duty in uh, Treehouse of Horror. But Mr. Bennett is the first to appear as himself, which means he himself is Simpsons canon, and we don't have to go to the comics continuity to be able to talk about him. (laughs) So, Anthony Dominic Benedetto was born August 3rd, 1926, and is still alive, as of the recording of this episode. Mm. After fighting in World War II, he started singing and quickly made the transition from pop to big band crooning. He outlasted rock and roll and free love, only to have a terrible 70s and wind up on coke with spiralling debts and the IRS on his back. His artistry was his downfall as he was uninterested in performing contemporary material, but couldn't find a way to return to relevance. He turned it around admirably with his son Danny taking over his management and getting him in front of different audiences. And around the same time he was on The Simpsons, he was starting to make appearances on other shows with younger audiences, such as Late Night with David Letterman and Muppets Tonight, as well as on MTV. He managed to make a connection with a younger generation who'd never heard the standards before and who admired him as something genuinely different to an alternative music scene that was becoming incredibly homogenised, particularly in post-Nirvana America. Mm. And nearly eight years after this show was broadcast, I saw Tony Bennett myself at Glastonbury 1998. The muddiest Glastonbury in living memory, I will fight you about that, (laughs) resplendent in a spotless suit. He was the only act that didn't get mud chucked at him. (laughs) The New York Times is quoted as saying that Bennett didn't just bridge the generation gap, he demolished it. And I can't think of a better illustration of that than his Glastonbury set. Nice. Since then, he has become the oldest living artist to appear on the Billboard Hot 100 and released, wait for this, a 73 CD and 3 DVD boxed set called The Complete Collection, which apparently isn't even complete. What? He's also been a vocal supporter of civil rights, has spoken out against the Second Iraq War, and has called for the legalisation of drugs. Nice. 
So there we go. Tony Bennett, Simpsons canon. Wow. I had no idea about all of that stuff. I thought Tony Bennett was just a crooner. Yeah. Wow, well. that's, that's brilliant. There we go. Did, dare I say his more, uh, his more modern mindset might have been key in uh, helping him break, break back through. But, yeah, uh, yeah. But there we go. Also in this episode, we first meet the Capital City Goofball, who is the mascot of the unnamed Capital City baseball team. We won't see much else of him, although he does appear in Season 7, Episode 21, 22 short films about Springfield, but who doesn't? And he has a walk-on in the background of Season 10, Episode 13, Homer to the Max, along with Dewey Largo, with them appearing when Lisa refers to certain characters being de-emphasised by television shows. (laughs) Better things are in his future. In Season 14, Episode 3... Bart versus Lisa versus the third grade, which we really, really can't get away from at the minute, mm. as this is the third time in six episodes that we've had need to mention it. He is shown as representing Capital City in the state legislature for the state that Springfield is in. But he is now presumed dead, as a memorial statue has been seen in a later episode, and more pointedly, his original voice actor, Tom Poston, died in 2007. Oh, okay. So, let's... Uh, Let's finish this off with some did you knows, Tom? Yep. Baby Elephant Walk was originally written for the 1962 film Hatari. That's Hatari with an exclamation mark, by the way. I'm not just uh, exclaiming it. Featuring noted Nazi John Wayne. (laughs) It's about a group of professional game catchers in Africa, and it won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Arrangement. Although later a set of lyrics were written by Hal David making it yet another instrumental I didn't realise there were established lyrics for. Much like Theme from a Summer Place, as featured in Season 5, Episode 1, <laughs> Homer's Barbershop Quartet. <laughs> what are you talking about? Of course there's lyrics to that. It goes, Theme from a Summer Place. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> it's, it's not far wider than the mark, actually. <laughs> um, um, the billboards in the ballpark largely advertise businesses we've already seen. Mm-hmm. So that's aside from Springfield Savings, safe from 1890 to 1986, 1988 onwards, Mm. which is new to us and probably a reference to October 19, 1987, Black Monday or Black Tuesday if you're in Australasia, where stock markets around the world crashed in unison. So the other signs are for Moe's Tavern, which has been in it plenty and is in this episode and will continue to be in it. Girdles and such fancy lingerie, where Homer considered getting Marge a present in Life on the Fast Lane. The Springfield Mall, in which Girdles and such is located. And Royal Majesty, clothing for the obese or gangly gentleman, where Carl and Homer have gone suit shopping in Simpson and Delilah. Mm-hmm. It's a little odd he didn't go there in Season 7, Episode 7, King-Sized Homer. In that episode, he buys his moo-moo from a store called The Vast Waistband. The only thing I can think of is that perhaps the Royal Majesty doesn't offer active wear. Yes, possibly. And that is Dancing Homer. Now, off we go to the land of the rising sun. So this week, I'm turning my attention to Japan. On November the 8th, 1990, the day Dancing Homer was first aired, Japan was preparing for the enthronement ceremony of Emperor Akihito, He became emperor following the death of his father, Hirohito. But let's start, as we always do, with a few facts about the country we're going to be talking about. Japan is a big volcanic archipelago in the Pacific, with the Korean Peninsula to the west and Russia to the northwest. Its four largest islands, from west to east, are Kyushu, Sikoku, Honshu and Hokkaido, well known for its countless soap factories. Okay, got another guessing game for you. Okay. How many islands make up Japan? Oh, God, it's not going to be a trick question, and it's one, is it? <laughs> no. Uh, okay, so it's going to be something something ridiculous like 30? For 30's ridiculous? Well, isn't it? Well, As you may have guessed, I know nothing about geography whatsoever. Okay, okay. Uh, well, this surprised me. It's 6,852. Shut the front door. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there are thousands of... Tiny, tiny, tiny ones. Yeah. Or like along the coast and out in the ocean, all that sort of stuff. It is a, a strongly volcanic region, isn't it? Yes. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Cool. So, population-wise, Japan is home to 127 million people, making it the 10th most populated country in the world. One thing that really stands out about Japan 
is its demographics. So when you look at the demographics for most countries, you'll see about 70 to 80% of one ethnicity, 10 to 20% of another, and various minorities. However, Japan is 98.5% Japanese. Now, this isn't that surprising, given that Japan was isolationist for centuries. So now a bit about the history. The Tokugawa shogunate took power in 1603. They set up a feudal society with the daimyo at the top, the warrior samurai class beneath them, merchants somewhere in the middle, and peasants at the bottom. The samurai were allowed to bear arms and would often walk around with their swords to show off their status. So that's where the image of, you know, the mighty, powerful samurai comes from. Japan had an isolation policy called Sakoku, which translates to closed country. Under this policy, trade with the West was extremely limited and the law even allowed for foreigners who entered Japan, or Japanese people who left, to be killed. They were, you know, they were that strict about it. Japan was forced to open up to the rest of the world by the Americans. The USA had interests in the Pacific. They were doing a lot of trade with China, had whaling ships, and they needed coaling stations for their ships. In 1853, the president of the USA, Millard Fillmore, sent a fleet of warships commanded by Commodore Matthew Perry to Japan, and basically told them to open up some of their ports to American trade, or the ships would attack. That's something known as gunboat diplomacy. I just need to rewind very slightly there. Oh. Fillmore. Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore, the mediocre president. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, and also, I'm, I'm relatively familiar with the, uh, the story of the gunboat diplomacy in Japan. Uh, it's got into in quite some detail in Julian Cope's book, Jap Rock Sampler. Oh, okay. Which later goes on to say what it's actually meant to be telling you about, which is about the group sounds in Japan in the uh, kind of mid-50s and 60s. Oh, okay. Um, but the fact that it's uh, Matthew Perry yeah. just always uh, always uh, brings me out of the, the story a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah. Could he be any more of a captain? <laughs> so the ships that Perry had under his command were way beyond the technical capabilities of Japan at the time. And the story goes that upon landing, Perry gave the Japanese various gifts, including a toy steam train. This incident, and seeing how the Western powers dominated ports in China, Britain in Hong Kong, and Portugal in Macau, convinced people in Japan that they couldn't be isolationist anymore. They knew that they needed to adopt the ways of the Western powers, or they'd be conquered by them. A few years after Perry's landing, the Emperor Meiji ascended to the throne, beginning what has become known as the Meiji Restoration. But before I get into that, I want to talk a bit about how the Japanese monarchy worked, or works. According to a tradition, the first emperor of Japan was the Emperor Jimmu, but he was supposed to be the descendant of the sun goddess, so it's probably fair to say that that's a legend. The role of the emperor has varied throughout time, and these days it's largely ceremonial, but until the 20th century, the emperor was considered a living god because, you know, descended from this sun goddess. Name-wise, each emperor has a given name, but they are also given an imperial name upon enthronement, which is used pretty much exclusively after they die. So whilst they're alive, they're just known as the emperor. Oh, okay, that makes sense, right. Yeah, and this name is also given to the period of their reign. So, for example, when Hirohito became emperor, he was given the title Showa, which roughly translates to Enlightened Peace. Ironically enough. Ah, oh, right. Yeah. Upon his death, the period of his reign became known as the Showa period. So before he became emperor, the emperor Meiji was known as Muchihito, but no one ever calls him that, and I've probably insulted all of Japan by using it. Uh, anyway, so the Meiji period saw huge changes to Japanese society. To start with, it saw the end of the influence of the shoguns, who once held the real power in Japan. Their lands were seized and placed under imperial control. The remnants of the shogunate fought the Boshin War, which ended when imperial forces won the Battle of Hakodate in Hokkaido in 1869. And the Meiji period saw a major reform of the Japanese military. Conscription was introduced in 1873, with each man expected to join the army for four years after turning 21. 
every man in Japan was allowed to bear arms, and the samurai were not allowed to bear their swords in public anymore. So this, combined with the removal of the government's stipend given to samurai, caused unrest in the samurai classes that led to the Satsuma Rebellion. The samurai, however, were no match for the new imperial army, and the rebellion was quickly put down. And that was the end of the samurai as a powerful class. So with its new westernised army, Japan went on to become a major military power. In 1894, Japan went to war with China in the First Sino-Japanese War. China and Japan fought for influence of the Korean Peninsula. The Japanese, whose sailors were trained by the British Navy and ships were built by the French, would prevail and Korea, as well as Taiwan, fell into their sphere of influence. There are still some very, very deep wounds from that war, Mm. uh, very evident in those countries. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. In 1902, Britain and Japan signed the Anglo-Japanese Alliance. Britain saw Japan as an ally against Russian expansion in the Far East. And unrelated, I think, in 1904, Russia and Japan went to war, again over Korea. Russia was after a Pacific port. They had Vladivostok, but at the time it was only open during summer. China leased the Russians Port Arthur, which today is called Lushankau. Japan saw Russia as a threat, and after trade talks broke down, they launched a surprise attack against the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. Sound familiar? Japanese launching a surprise attack against an enemy fleet? Reminds me of a terrible film, but... Mm. So the Japanese would go on to win the war. It was concluded with the Treaty of Portsmouth, presided over by Teddy Roosevelt, no less which saw the Japanese cement their control over Korea and the Russians evacuate Manchuria. It sent shockwaves throughout Russia, which influenced the revolution of 1905, but that's another story. On July 30th, 1912, the Emperor Meiji died. He was succeeded by his son, who became the Emperor Taisho. In World War I, Japan was on the side of the UK, having renewed the Anglo-Japanese alliance in 1905 and again in 1911. Although considered a minor theatre compared to Europe, the Japanese Navy assisted Britain by securing sea lanes in the Pacific and Indian Oceans from the Imperial German Navy. They also took various German possessions, including the Marshall Islands and Tsingtao, where the beer comes from. Ah, okay. Yeah, which is why Tsingtao has a brewing tradition, because Germans used to be there. And Germans are rather good at making beer. That's a real eye-opener, right? Mm. I had never known that. Mm Mm-hmm. So after the First World War, tensions arose between the major powers. The USA was wary of Japan, fearing that with their powerful navy they could cut off their trade to China. Australia were also fearful of Japan, with concerns that the Japanese could easily reach Australian territory that would be hard to defend. On February 6th, 1922, a meeting of the major powers at the Washington Naval Conference concluded with the signing of the Nine Powers Treaty, This was supposed to settle disputes with the region and keep Chinese ports open, but it was ineffective, as we shall see. With the signing of this treaty, the UK was unwilling to renew the Anglo-Japanese alliance for fear of alienating the UK, and it was officially terminated in 1923. Relationships between the USA and Japan were extremely soured in 1924, after the American government passed the Japanese Exclusion Act, Basically, the state stopped Japanese people from emigrating and set quotas for Japanese people who were already there, deporting people when that quota was exceeded. As you can imagine, this caused a huge amount of resentment in Japan. The Emperor Taisho died on Christmas Day 1926. His son, Hirohito, became emperor, being given the title Showa. Politically, Japan was at a crossroads of democracy and fascism. In the previous year, universal male suffrage was introduced. Any man over the age of 25 could vote, so long as they weren't homeless. However, at the same time, right-wing parties were pushing the rather euphemistically named Peace Preservation Law through Parliament. Now don't forget, this is not long after the Russian Revolution and the creation of the Soviet Union. So various powers are rather fearful of communism. The goal of the peace preservation law was to suppress any chance of something similar happening in Japan, and it saw left-wing groups outlawed. While Japan did well economically in the first few years of the Showa period, that all changed when the stock market crash of 1929 hit, which led to the Great Depression. 
By this point, the previously shut-off Japan was now firmly a part of the global economy, and it suffered greatly during the Great Depression. Societal order broke down, and in 1930, the Prime Minister Hamaguchi Osachi was shot by an ultra-nationalist, eventually dying the next year. The government lost control of the army, and in the summer of 1931, the army set off some explosives in Mukden, Manchuria, which has become known as the Mukden Incident. They blamed China for it and used the event as an excuse to invade. And what do you call it when that happens? It's a false flag attack. So, you know, conspiracy nuts may go on about false flag attacks, but they do happen throughout history. After invading, the army set up the puppet state of Manchukuo. By this point, the government was dominated by army officials and it withdrew from the League of Nations. At this point, Japan was resembling a fascist military dictatorship. Sporadic fighting continued in Manchuria, but in 1937, an incident at the Marco Polo Bridge erupted into a full-scale battle, which resulted in the start of a second Sino-Japanese war. Japanese forces took Shanghai and would go on to take Nanjing. While occupying the area, the Japanese forces committed their worst war crimes to date. They murdered up to 300,000 civilians and surrendered soldiers, as well as raping thousands of women. This horror is known as the Nanjing Massacre, or alternatively, the Rape of Nanjing. And the Second Sino-Japanese War was still being fought when Nazi Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, officially starting the Second World War. However, Japan wasn't initially at war with the USA. In 1940, Japan invaded what was French Indochina in an attempt to stop China from receiving supplies. The states responded by moving their naval fleet to Hawaii and placing an oil embargo on Japan. See, that's one thing that people don't take into consideration with the American fleet being in Hawaii. It was there deliberately to try and you know, intimidate Japan. It was like, don't do anything or our fleet will be there to get you. Japanese officials estimated that they had two years of supplies before they ran out, which would bring their entire military to a standstill. Japan had no oil of its own, so drew up plans to invade territories that did. One of these places was the Philippines, which was at the time administered by the USA. See Imelda Marcos and the Fastlane for more information about the Philippines. They knew that if they attacked the Philippines, then the US would respond by declaring war on them. So they put together a plan to neutralise the US Navy. They did this by launching a surprise attack on the fleet at Pearl Harbor. And as Al Murray says, the US was taken completely by surprise two years into a global war. Four days after Pearl Harbor, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy declared war on the USA, bringing the US fully into World War II and kind of merging the two theatres. Bit of a uh, own goal there by the Axis forces. Well, it was... It was a bit of an all or nothing for Japan, really, because they knew that they could sort of chug along for about two years, but after that, the oil embargo would really take would really take its toll. It, it, it was a sort of like putting all your eggs in one basket type thing. It's like, okay, so so we attack the American fleet, we neutralise it, and then we're free to take all the oil fields in the Philippines and wherever else. Oh, no, no, that I get. It's Germany and Italy I don't get. So did they already have some kind of agreement with Japan? Uh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. They they were already on the same side. Right. Um, so, so it was Germany and Italy declaring war on the States. So at that point, America really didn't have a choice. I see. So, so, so it was, you know, there was a big movement in the States that was trying to keep them neutral. They were trying to say, you know, this is Europe's war. We don't want anything to do with it. And do you know what that movement was called? Something to do with peace preservation? No, it was called America First. That sounds eerily familiar. Mm, mm. And yeah, and who 60 years later comes along saying America First? Anyway, the Japanese forces coordinated the attack on Pearl Harbor with attacks on several other targets in Southeast Asia, simultaneously attacking Hong Kong, British Malaya and the Philippines. Hong Kong surrendered on Christmas Day 1941. They made huge gains in Malaya, forcing the Allies to retreat to Singapore. Singapore itself was taken on February 15th, 1942. Around 80,000 Allied troops were taken as prisoner of war and used as forced labour, famously being used to build the Burma Railway. And the Japanese treatment of their POWs was notoriously bad. 
you know, there's plenty of films about it, so, mm, you know. And if you're looking for one along those lines, I would recommend Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Oh, okay. One of David Bowie's better acting uh, outings, that one. Oh, okay, cool. So the Japanese continued south and achieved their target of securing oil supplies, taking the islands of the former Dutch East Indies. Meanwhile, in the Pacific, the Japanese Navy struggled against the US Navy. The two sides engaged each other in the Battle of the Coral Sea, where the Japanese failed to secure a decisive victory. In June 1942, the two sides fought the Battle of Midway. This battle resulted in heavy losses for the Japanese and marked a turning point in the war, and from this point Japan was on the back foot. The Allies pushed back in Southeast Asia, with General Douglas MacArthur landing in Leyte, the Philippines, on October 20th, 1944. Desperate, the Japanese resorted to kamikaze tactics. Fighter planes were laden with explosives, and the pilots would deliberately fly them into their targets in suicide attacks. That's a common misunderstanding with, uh, with the kamikaze pilots. That wasn't a standard tactic. I was about was- to say, sometimes you see sort of recollections or reimaginings of Pearl Harbor where there's kamikaze attacks. No, no. But that that wouldn't have happened then no. until much later in the war. No, absolutely, absolutely. The impression that I get, and I, I may be jumping ahead here, is that Japan was essentially eating itself towards the end of the, the war, just out of absolute desperation, kind of any any tactics that would get them a leg up, anything that would stop them from the absolute obliteration that was was on its way, yeah. they, they would attempt. Yeah, it's it also surrendering was just completely against the Japanese military code. Yeah. It's not not really an excuse, but but it but it's an it's a reason given for why they treated their POWs so badly. Because these are people who had surrendered. They were cowards, they were the lowest of the low. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's also why the Japanese fought so doggedly in places like Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Um, yeah, so on the 19th of February 1945, the US landed on the tiny island of Iwo Jima, where they fought a fierce battle with Japanese forces. They would eventually prevail, raising the stars and stripes in what would become one of the most iconic photos of the war. You know, the four guys, you know, hauling the flag up. Yeah, fair few statues of that, if I remember Yeah, exactly, exactly. So with taking of islands such as Saipan and Guam, the Japanese mainland came in range of US bombers. The US Air Force started a campaign of incendiary bombing against Japanese cities. As many buildings were still made out of wood, the bombings caused fires that killed hundreds of thousands of people. The states also mined Japanese harbours to block their shipping. There was a nice name for this. They called it Operation Starvation. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's like we're not going to make any bones about it. We're, we're trying to starve people. Mm. Yeah. And later they move on to more euphemistic names such as Operation Infinite Justice. But, yes. You know, uh, but uh, I'll go with starvation. Absolutely. It does exactly what it says on the tin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, when you see aerial footage of post-war Japan and it's just like all the buildings are gone chances are that's not a result of a nuclear attack chances are that's that's the firebombing mm. and just all the buildings have gone they've, they've just all been burned so all of this preceded the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki now I've talked about these bombings before and the morality behind them so I won't go over them again but a few days after the bombings the USSR according to the agreement reached at the Potsdam Conference, declared war on Japan. And on August 15th, 1945, Emperor Hirohito... On August 15th, 1945, Emperor Hirohito announced the unconditional surrender to the USA, and Japan fell under American military occupation, with Douglas MacArthur heading it up. And one of the things that's quite interesting to consider is that the accepted version of events is that it was the atomic bombings that forced Japan's hand. But the USSR declaring war would have been a really big factor as well. Because in the past, Russia and Japan had gone to war, and the Japanese knew that the USSR was expansionist and you know would really like to have got its hands on various Japanese territories, maybe even Japan itself. So there's this idea that it was much, much better to surrender to the USA and then be under the protection of the states than allow the country to be invaded by the Soviet Union. Yeah. 
One of the first questions for the Americans was what to do with Japan's wartime leaders, especially Hirohito. MacArthur ordered 40 leaders to be arrested, including the Prime Minister Hideki Tojo. When American GIs went to arrest Tojo, he shot himself in the chest. But he managed to miss his heart and was saved by medics, and he received a blood transfusion after one of the GIs made a donation. While in custody, he was given a new set of dentures which had Remember Pearl Harbor drilled into them in Morse code. Tojo was put before an international court and hanged for war crimes in 1948. But the question remained as to what to do with the emperor. After all, he wasn't strictly a war leader like Tojo was, and some still considered him to be a living god. So MacArthur didn't want him killed because he was still the figurehead of Japan. So on January 1st, 1946, Hirohito issued the Humanity Declaration, renouncing the idea that he was any kind of deity. Under the occupation, the role of emperor was made entirely ceremonial. Whilst occupying the country, the Americans moved to pacify Japan. The military was disarmed, all Japanese colonies were given their independence, and the peace preservation law was abolished. In 1947, a new constitution was adopted, granting civil liberties and universal suffrage. The San Francisco Peace Treaty of 1951 formalised the relationship between the US and Japan, and in 1952, the occupation officially ended. Post-war Japan went on to become one of the world's largest economies. Japan made its contribution to the world of cinema, and I'm going to be a little self-indulgent here because I want to talk about Godzilla. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so, and the conversation swings back toward Gareth. <laughs> so, produced by Toho Studios, the original Godzilla film was released in 1954, less than ten years after the nuclear bombings. Godzilla himself is created from an atomic explosion, and he's a huge fire-breathing kaiju that leaves a trail of destruction. And the end of the film, spoilers if you haven't seen the original Godzilla... The end of the film has a huge moral quandary, as the weapon they eventually use to kill Godzilla has the ability to destroy life on Earth. And the protagonist has to make a huge choice as, as to whether, whether to use it or not. So, so you are the Godzilla expert. There's a Godzilla poster over there. There's a Godzilla clock on the wall. So, yeah, any, any thoughts? Just to say that um, our listeners are more likely to be familiar being from, I, I would guess, usually Britain, America, that, that kind of country, uh, with the more campy sort of monster wrestling style films that Godzilla starred in after his original, more serious cinematic outing. Um, if you haven't seen the first Godzilla film, see it. Yes. It, is, it will blow away your conceptions about what a monster movie is and can be. As we've touched on, it's a massive metaphor for the atomic bomb. And it's, it's Japan artistically coming to terms with its role in the war, mm -hmm. um, its guilt in some ways over the, the role in the war, and the, the atomic weapon itself. Um, and it's, it's just magnificent. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd second that. You, you have to take film as very much a product of its time. Mm. Don't worry about things like special effects. Even though for 1954, they're really, really good. Yes. And bizarrely, it being in black and white really adds to the horror of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas the, the, especially the early colour entries, uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla was the first one that was um, in colour. And as you can tell by the fact I've just said King Kong vs. Godzilla, <laughs> A, it's not the most serious of films, and B, the, the filmmaking itself does leave a little bit to be desired, although mm. that is admittedly seeing it through modern eyes. It may have looked absolutely fantastic at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, although the, the King Kong suit looks like it's it's made from an old sofa. Yeah, yeah. Um, with some dog <laughs> hair on it. Um, anyway, we've gone, gone slightly into, uh, yeah. into King Kong versus Godzilla. Though. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but, the, your main takeaway from this should be watch the original Godzilla. Yes, yeah. Or indeed, watch Gojira, the original Japanese version. Yes. Because Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the version that was released in America, has some tacked-on scenes with Raymond Burr. Now, mm. I'm not going to say Raymond Burr's not a good actor, but he doesn't add anything to the film. No, no, he, he, he sort of narrates it for us dumb Westerners. He basically tells you what's going on. But, yes. you, but you don't need to be told what's going on, because you can see it. His entire role is, in fact, to ask people what's going on. That's pretty much what he does. All of his lines are... 
hey, what's that over there? Or tell me what's happening now. It's yeah. Absolutely bizarre. But yeah, so, yeah good actor though. Yeah. Good actor. Yeah. Right. We, right. We'd better get off Godzilla because there's another cultural thing that I want to get on to. Welcome to the Godzilla podcast. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> and seriously, if anyone wants to do that, uh, at underscore mm. retrospecticus. <laughs> so... Japanese companies would go on to become household names in the West, especially here in the UK. Japanese technology began to outstrip everyone else's, most notably in the area of consumer electronics. And being a nerdy kid in the late 80s and early 90s, it was just the norm that Japan got everything first, because all the big companies, Nintendo, Sega, Konami, Capcom and the rest, were Japanese. And they formed a huge contribution to you know, Western culture of that era. So Mario, Sonic, Legend of Zelda, all of those, all originally Japanese. There was also a lot of cultural exchange between Japan and the West during this time. Fast food outlets such as McDonald's and KFC became popular in Japan, and eating KFC at Christmas has become popular for some reason. You have to pre-order. Yeah, yeah. I don't get that at all, but anyway. So in return... Mediums such as anime and manga gained some popularity in the West. So while my knowledge of the subject is limited, my favourite anime is Akira. Yes, and and again, uh, sort of uh, the same speed as our point about the original Godzilla. If you've heard anything about anime, particularly in the 90s, you will have heard of Akira. Yeah. Um, it, it is the classic it's made out to be. Mm-hmm. It really yeah. is. Yeah. So it starts off with a nuclear explosion and ends with the character Tetsuo horribly mutating into this huge, disgusting mass. And that scene's even been parodied in South Park. Yes. Um, so, so, so the story is partly inspired by societal change in Japan. It's, it's sort of this idea, right, well, you know, for hundreds, thousands of years, we ate mostly rice. And now we've got all these Western foods. We've got burgers and fries. So, you know, is that transforming us into you know into some sort of new some some sort of new weird species but one of my best cinematic treats and uh, and i'm not a massive film buff was seeing akka in the cinema it makes such a difference yes and in the original japanese as well rather than the uh, the english dub that was more prevalent on sort of early 90s vhs's yeah Um, yeah the music is fantastic and it really it really requires a cinema to sort of get that that across. Um, I've got a couple of things I can actually say about Akira at this stage. Yeah, go for um, it. One of them is that the the opening blast, the nuclear blast in Akira, takes place at the 2020 Olympic Games. Oh, I didn't know the that. The 2020 Olympic Games is going to be in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. Oh, my word. So there we go. That's had a little chill down my spine, that is. Yeah, wow. Um, also, I've recently become aware of a, a manga project called Bart Kira. Which okay. is uh, like every every single page of the original Akira manga redrawn with Simpsons characters. Okay. okay. Uh, it looks fantastic. I'm not sure if it's commercially available, but uh, wow. yeah, it's uh, one for you to look up if you like Akira and the Simpsons. Okay, okay. There, there was one other film I wanted to talk a little bit about, which is Battle Royale. Oh yes. Now, now that is also themed on societal breakdown and it's roughly the story is that every year a class of kids is selected and they're put on an island and they're given a weapon each and they have to kill each other and until there's only one standing like i didn't quite understand why but the end of the film's weird because it features the actor from takeshi's castle turning up and delivering a monologue yes uh, beat takeshi who is is Equally well-known in Japan as a relatively lowbrow comedian and light entertainer, and the star of incredibly violent, highbrow psychological thriller movies. <laughs> um, and again, the, the duality like that is unthinkable in this country. Yeah, yeah. It, it'd be like Bruce Forsyth being in Die Hard. It's, <laughs> it's just... Uh, I, don't, I honestly believe there is no other country you could have a career like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever watched Takeshi's Castle? I have. It's um, it's very good. Um, I would actually urge people to get the Craig Charles dub if they possibly can. Oh, it's brilliant. But my 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 favourite little thing about 
Takeshi's Castle in the UK is that it's it's narrated by Craig Charles, you know, who, who plays Lister in Red Dwarf. And it's my understanding that he gets the raw footage and he has absolutely no idea what's going on. So he, so he just completely makes it up. It, it's, it, it's, it's a little bit like with the magic roundabout. The, the story behind that is it, it was this cute, I think either French or Belgium uh, animated kids show. And the narrator for that, he got the footage, but he didn't get the script. So yeah, he just completely made up what was happening. So uh, yeah. So, so, yeah, so yeah, definitely check out Takeshi's Castle. So, so, so what's that people got to see? People got to see Godzilla, Akira, Battle Royale and Takeshi's Castle. One of these things is not like the others. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But they're they're all definitely, definitely worth seeing. Yes, definitely, definitely. So, so just to bring it back to Hirohito, and just to keep it really weird, actually. So, so Hirohito, whilst in his ceremonial role of em- emperor, spent a lot of time in a way that you wouldn't expect. He was very keen on marine biology, but not in a sort of Prince Charles hobbyist way. He had a lab built on the grounds of the Imperial Palace, and his work yielded several papers, including ones which detailed a hydrozoa that was previously unknown to science. And if... You, it, this is so sad, I'll look this up. There's a hydrozoa database, and if you search for Hirohito, you get about three dozen species which, have all, which are all named after him. He was, he was a serious scientist, not something you expect from the... From the Emperor of Japan. Excellent. He's, he's not trying to cover up any sort of Troy McClure tendencies there. No. <laughs> with the private aquarium. No, no. So, as well as being a scientist, he quietly fulfilled his ceremonial duties and eventually died on the 7th of January 1989, having been on the throne for just over 62 years. My word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was there for a long, long time. He was succeeded by his son and current Emperor Akihito, who was enthroned on the 12th of November 1990, just four days after Dunstan Homer first aired. His imperial name is Heisei, I think that's how you say that, which roughly means peace everywhere, and that name is given to the period Japan is currently in. The Heisei era started off in the middle of an economic boom, with the Nikkei reaching record highs. After this bubble burst, Japan experienced over 10 years of deflation known as the Lost Decade. Now, although Hirohito was gone, the past remained a thorny issue, not helped by revisionist history books that describe the Nanjing Massacre as an incident, and politicians' frequent visits to the Yasukuni Shrine, which honours some war criminals. I mean, even Hirohito boycotted that shrine, as does Akihito. On March 11th, 2011, a huge earthquake struck in the northwest of the country, causing a tsunami. Thousands were killed and it led to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And I know a little bit about that because because my little brother was in Japan at the time. Oh, right. I was there the year before. Oh, okay. Um, so you just missed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, by, by the best part of a year. But, um... Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, because what my brother did, he, he sort of spent a year on a working holiday. And he was working in a ski resort in Hokkaido when the when the earthquake hit. And he's got quite nice he's got quite a nice way of describing it. He says that it felt like people were throwing cupboards around upstairs. Oh. I was uh, I was actually in a, an earthquake the second time I went to Japan, which was in uh, twenty fifteen. Uh, it was a, a very violent one, but at sea. Mm. So it wasn't that bad when it got to land. But I was uh, I was sat at the bar of uh, <laughs> And you'll have to excuse me for this slight Brits Abroad uh, thing. <laughs> I was at the bar of the uh, Witchwood Brewery's Hobgoblin uh, in uh, Roppongi in Tokyo. Okay. Um, and, uh, the, yeah, the room just started swaying, sort of lightly at first, but then a bit more sort of alarmingly. At first I thought I was falling asleep because I was very jet-lagged. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was just kind of, you know, just people calmly sat around going, yep, it's an earthquake. I've yeah. been going, why, yeah. why is everybody so calm about this? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's just a thing. It just happened. Yeah, earthquake. Yeah, as, as you were. So, as for Akihito, he's set to do something unprecedented. He's due to be the first emperor to retire. Oh, I thought for a second that you might not know this and I was going to get to say an actual fact. No, uh, no, afraid yeah. not, afraid not. Citing age and poor health... Akihito persuaded the government to pass a law that will allow him to abdicate at the end of April 2019, which is about six weeks away. 
and his son Naruhito will ascend to the throne. When this happens, it will mark the end of the Heisei period and a new era for Japan. Fantastic. And if you carry on listening to the show long enough, we'll actually get out to Japan in the episode 30 Minutes Over Tokyo, season 10, episode 23. Mm -hmm. So it's a a mere eight seasons and about 15 episodes away. Not the greatest of episodes, that one, if I remember rightly. No, no, it's, uh, yeah... I, th- I think I think they were firmly in. Let's just do lots of stereotypes territory. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Well, that was a monster. Yeah. Turns out we quite like some Japanese stuff. We do. And uh, hopefully you've got enough recommendations for yeah. us. That was literally a monster. It was Godzilla. Yes, it was indeed. <laughs> uh, and by the way, Brock isn't canon. Just just making sure that's in there. Um, if you'd like to ask us anything more about Japan or, or uh, tell us uh, tell us anything, uh, any of your experiences of Japan or Japanese cultures, do feel free to tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. And don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. You can also send an eel to podcast at Retrospecticus.org. Tom's been a pleasure as always. Mm-hmm. Same here. Excellent. And thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.